1: So I want you to go on a walk with me tonight, and we're going to start off tonight with our walk. I think it's important for our walk that we actually choose a location to kind of flesh out this imaginary walk that you and I are going on together, and it's important that we choose a location that is not too pristine. So we're not going walking through a beautiful forest or through an upscale neighborhood. We need to pick out somewhere that is a little bit greasy, somewhere that makes you think about washing your hands all the time. So, you and I are walking together at Summerfest, and it just stopped raining, so it's muddy, and it's 1 a.m. Don't judge me for being there, I'm just there to go on a walk with you. And so, as we're walking together through the mud at 1 a.m. at Summerfest, you and I both, we look off to the left side of our path, and we see this thing in the mud, and it is Though it's dirty, clear what it is. It's one of those like ring pop things, right? That like looks like that and it's half eaten, it's disgusting. So what do you and I do? Well, nothing. We do nothing. We don't touch it, we don't pick it up. For so many reasons. First of all, it's half eaten. There's nothing really to garner here. And then there's like all the added things like there could be like some bacteria on it. I mean, you have to remember where we're at right now. So it could also be like, there's a razor blade in there or it's laced with cocaine or... Or worse, it's like one of those suckers with gum in the middle. And, and so, like, we don't want anything to do with this. And it's a very easy decision to make for so many reasons. And so we decide to leave it where it's at and just keep walking. So we walk five more steps. And then on the right side of the path, we look and we see a ring. But this ring is a very different ring. This ring is a gorgeous three-carat diamond ring. When I went shopping for Mandy's wedding ring... I saved up for about six months to pay for this thing, and as I'm checking out at the counter to pay the jeweler, and the jeweler looks at me, and he looks at the ring, and he goes, wow, this is such a beautiful starter ring. So I explained to him that I was not planning on marrying my starter wife, and so if she could last until I die, so could the ring. So you and I, we see this gorgeous three-carat ring, and what do we do? We pick it up. Of course we pick it up. Why? Because it has value, and all of the excuses that we used to have suddenly don't apply. We're suddenly not concerned about bacteria or if it's going to get our white pants dirty. Yes, we're both wearing white pants in this imaginary walk, and it's after Labor Day, which is really strange. But we can't... It suddenly doesn't matter. Why? Because this ring has value. It has value. It has financial value. It might have strong emotional value to the person that it belonged to. And it's this very easy decision for us to make. There is nothing wrong with us treating things very differently because of the value that we assess them to have. There is something extremely wrong and dangerous and sinful when we do the same thing with the way that we treat people. James chapter 2 verse 1 says this, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? Let's pray together tonight. Lord, I love you. I thank you so much that you have not left us in the dark. You have given us your word and by your word we can be transformed. You can change our hearts and our minds and you can change our eternal destination by the power of your word. We love you, we give you thanks, and we give you our attention tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. So today is week three in a eight-week series. We are walking through the book of James, which is found in the New Testament. James was the younger half-brother of Jesus who came to faith later in his life. Many scholars believe that James didn't believe in Jesus until after Jesus was resurrected, and nonetheless, James becomes a cornerstone of this new Christian faith. He is a pastor and a missionary and an author, and tonight, he wants us to talk about judgment and mercy, and his pathway to get us to focus on this is through the subject of favoritism. I want to go back and reread the first verse that we read, and as we do, I want to focus not on the subject of favoritism. I want to focus this time On the importance of the subject of favoritism. How important does this feel to James that we talk about this tonight? So James 2 verse 1 says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? James says, we're going to talk about favoritism today, and this is really important. He says, it's so important that it causes me to question your faith in Christ. Wow, he says, "How can you have faith in Christ if you show favoritism?" James doesn't see this as some peripheral issue. He doesn't say, "Hey, we've all got stuff. So if if you'd work on that favoritism thing a little bit, that would be helpful." James says, "I don't understand how you can be a Christian and show favoritism. These two things can't go together. If one exists, the other one can't exist." And the gravity of this should really catch our attention. I want to walk through a few terms here for a minute. Some of these terms are in the passage and others aren't. But I think as we kind of link them together tonight, I think it would be really helpful as to kind of walk into the subject. So the first one is the word favoritism. So favoritism is unfair, unequal kindness. Now, wait a second. You're telling me that there is an ungodly way for me to spend my kindness Yes. Yes, there is. If you are the kindest person in the room and you're very nice and generous and you make brownies for people all the time, but if you show kindness in a unfair, unequal way, that is favoritism. And the Bible says, how can you be a Christian and also be showing favoritism? Now, let's pay attention to those two qualifiers. So the the, the two adjectives there is unfair and unequal. Now, Are there situations where it would be fair or right or godly for me to show unequal kindness? Well, there is. So so my wife, I should be more kind to my wife than any other woman in this church. She is someone who deserves my unequal kindness. My children deserve my unequal kindness. But when we distribute unfair, unequal kindness, that is called favoritism, So here's some of the types of favoritism that we'll see in our culture, in the world that we live in. So the first one we're going to name off is chauvinism. So chauvinism is favoritism based on gender. God has designed unique giftings for the roles of men and for women, but showing unequal kindness because of gender is favoritism. Jesus taught us to value men and women equally. Jesus existed in an extremely patriarchal society, and yet Jesus keeps talking to women and healing women and sharing the good news with them and forgiving their sins and welcoming them into community. We should treat men and women equally in the body of Christ. The next one is racism. So racism is favoritism based on race or ethnicity. You know, we often think about racism in, in aggressive terms, you know, we think of it as hate or as abuse. And I want you to think about it a little differently tonight. I want you to think about racism as unfair, unequal kindness. So if you are someone with dark skin and you are only kind to people who have dark skin, that is favoritism. If you are someone who has is light skin and you are only kind to people who have light skin, that is racism. Did you know that the early church had a problem with racism? So for the early church, it wasn't about Latinos or blacks or whites. It was about Gentiles and Jews. And these people groups who had slight differences in their skin color and slight differences in the way that they looked, but had great differences in their cultures— The table of Christ is an open table, and so both of these people groups start falling in love with Jesus. They come to faith. They start moving in, and suddenly they're going to church together, and this caused trouble. It caused strife. It was not easy. It was difficult, and God says in his kingdom, we cannot show unfair, unequal kindness because of the color of our skin or because of our culture. The next one I'm going to list is ageism. So ageism is favoritism based on age. Did you know the early church also had a problem with ageism? So in the culture that they existed in, the only way to advance, the only way to get moved up to be the guy in charge was for the person older than you to die. So if dad was king, he was king because he was the oldest. And the only way to be moved into that spot was for dad to die so that you then became the oldest. Well, this is ageism. This is putting someone in a position simply because of their age. And God says that's favoritism. There's actually in uh, the New Testament, there's a book called 1 Timothy. And the Apostle Paul tells this young guy, Timothy, he says this don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith. And impurity. So I mean, it is a bad habit in our churches or in the body of Christ for a 20-year-old to assume that they have nothing to learn from an 80-year-old. It's also a really bad habit in the body of Christ for an 80-year-old to assume they have nothing to learn from a 20-year-old. The table of Christ is an open table. Anyone gets to sit down, we walk in empty-handed and we walk in equal. And God says that if you share unfair, unequal kindness because of age, that is favoritism. Now, all of these fall under this kind of category of favoritism, but the example that James gives us in chapter 2 is another subcategory. It's the fourth one that I'm going to cover tonight. Here's the fourth one that I'm going to give you is classism. So classism is favoritism based on wealth or social status. So this is where you offer someone unfair, unequal kindness because of their wealth or because of the people that they are connected to. So let's read the the example that James gives us. James 2 verses 2 through for. For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Can I get into your business a little bit tonight? Let's think about our church. So, at our church, almost every Sunday morning, our lead pastor, Jerry Brooks, and his wife, Sherry, after any service, they're going to try and find themselves out in the foyer because they love being accessible, and that's an awesome trade, and that's an awesome example of servant leadership. And so they're out in the foyer, and I wanna tell you that if you're new here, or if you've never met them before, or if you're someone who's been here for 50 years, when you see them, that's a great opportunity. You should go up and say hi to Jerry and Sherry, and tell them what's going on in your life, and ask them about their life, and have that connecting point. That's a really great thing to have. You should do that. If you come in this building, and you are not kind to anyone else, if you don't say hi to anyone else, if you don't care to have a conversation with anyone else, and you only want to talk to them, that's classism. And, and I, I get the draw, right? Because they're really cool, and they're really smart, and they dress really well, and we like, wanna be attached to people that are in charge, and that's really great, but it's not great when it causes favoritism to move into our hearts And we begin to class people on the people that are worth our kindness and the people that we believe are not worth our kindness. That is favoritism. And there's that draw, but we have to walk away from it because it is a hypocrisy to our faith. They don't go together. How can you follow Christ and show favoritism? You just can't. You you can't do both. They can't go together. You know, we've taken the time to work through these types of favoritism. And the thing that always sticks out to me, I look through that list of, of chauvinism and racism, ageism, and classism. It might be something that would be like clarifying for someone to go, oh, I think that, that's what that is, or I've seen that, or I've experienced that, as you're kind of walking through it. The thing that is the hardest part to me, the part that is the most frustrating about it, is that when you separate it out like this, about 99% of people aren't going to identify with any one of them. 99% of people are going to go, I'm not, I'm not any of those things. I don't don't have a problem. I'm a good, kind person. I I don't have a problem with any of those things. And we have a a dangerously clear conscience. You know, I think most people don't go to bed at night and go, I'm a racist, and fall asleep. You know, I think, I'm sure someone somewhere... And I think the reason why we have given ourselves this clear conscience is we don't recognize our behaviors as unfair, unequal kindness because we have made a, big word here, judgment that our unequal kindness is fair. I'm going to say that again because I think it's a weighty sentence that I want us to land into tonight. We don't recognize our behaviors as unfair, unequal kindness because we have made a judgment That our unequal kindness is fair. It's fair. This is the way that it's supposed to be. The chauvinist says, women think more emotionally, and so they shouldn't be in leadership. The racist says, they were raised in a different culture, and so they won't be successful in mine. The ageist says, they don't have the experience, and we can't take the risk. The classist says, we won't have anything in common, so why try? We walk around with a dangerously clear conscience because we've convinced ourselves that our unequal kindness is fair. It's okay. And James calls out this deception in the last verse that we read. Let's read it again. Verse 4, doesn't this discrimination, so your favoritism, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? This is a big thought. I was 22, and I was on a road trip with my little sisters. I've got two sisters that are like two and four years younger than me, and they're just amazing people. And if you ever get to meet them, your life will be better. And we were on this road trip together from Springfield, Missouri, all the way to Dallas, Texas. So it's like six or seven hours, and there's plenty of room for boredom along the way. And so somewhere along the way, we were on some random two-lane road going through Oklahoma. And we were just singing our hearts out. And so, like, the music is cranked up, and we're just, like, basically screaming as we're going down the road. And everything is just, like, perfect in life until I see these, like, beautiful red and blue lights flashing in my rearview window. And so we do the thing, right? We get real serious all of a sudden, turn off the music, pull over the car, and then sit there. The police officer comes up. He gets my license and my uh, insurance card, goes back there, and then we sit for, like, a very long time. Very quietly. Very quietly with our best behavior. And so he comes back up to the car, and very calmly, um, he asked me five questions. The first question was, young man, are you aware that you were driving 15 miles over the speed limit? No sir, I was not. Full honesty, I knew I was doing 10, but I did not know I was doing 15. Young man, are are you aware that you swerved over the center line? No sir, and I I was not. The music was just really great. Young man, are you aware that your insurance card has expired? No, sir, I'm not. And the insurance was not actually expired, but the card in my car was was expired. Young man, are you aware that the registration on your car is also expired? I was not aware of that. And the final question was the one that really hit home. Young man, what were you doing? And I looked at him totally serious and I said, sir, I was singing. (laughs) Which was truthful, but he was not amused. And those are the facts. If I think about the event, what happened, those are the facts. Those are the things that happened. And they either all happened or they didn't happen. And they all happened. It was all true. Everything that he had observed, there was just no way around it. Those are the facts. But what happens next is he has to now move past that point in order to make a judgment on me. He has to move past the things that he can know into the things that he can't know and start asking questions that he can't know the answer to. So he has to start asking himself the question, is this young man a danger to the other drivers that are on the road today? He has to ask himself, is this young man going to change his behavior if I give him a warning? Or do I need to attach a consequence to it in order for him to change his behavior? He can't know these things. He has to now lean into his training, his experience, and his intuition in order to make a judgment on me. Every judgment journeys beyond fact into the unknowns of motivation. Judgment journeys past what happened into why it happened. If every courtroom case was only about the facts, then we wouldn't need a judge. We would just need a mathematician because it would just be this plus this equals that. But it's more complex than that. It's not what happened. It's why it happened. I don't know. I don't know. I can't know. I can't lean into people's hearts, which is why the Bible tells us over and over and over again, don't judge. Don't judge. Don't judge. On the day that I got pulled over, it was the job of that police officer to make a judgment on me. It was an authority that was placed on him by his captain and by the God who allowed him to go to work that day. But when it is not your calling, when it is not your role or your authority, do not make judgment. Judgment. Jesus said, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. That sounds pretty great to me. Jesus said, Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And that's not me. I should not be throwing stones. I should not be making judgments because I don't know. I cannot know the motives of someone else's heart. Paul says in Romans 2, He says, You may think you can condemn such people. This is hurtful, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. Every judgment journeys beyond the facts into the unknowns of motivation, and we should not be in that space. We should not be there. Why? Because humans are notoriously bad at making judgments. They are things that we can't understand. James tells us that they are guided by our evil motives. And for your evil motives to go around your life making judgments on every person that you see and know and work with, that is a dangerous chair to sit in. And I don't want to be in that chair There's only one person who knows. There's only one person who understands and it's not you and it's not me. And so when I am standing at that corner, when an incident has happened, when I have been hurt, when I have been annoyed, when I have been abused, when something has come into my life that looks unholy to me and I have the choice of what to do, when I am being pushed in my inner spirit to make a judgment on a person, to view someone as less valuable. Because of a conclusion that I come to when I am standing on that on that edge. Don't judge. If you only hear two words in the sermon, here they are: show mercy. Show mercy and then do it over and over and over again. This is the way, this is kingdom living, this is kingdom thinking. When you are at the corner and you are tempted to make a judgment, don't judge. Show mercy. Mercy is compassion that leads us to forgiveness. It's not just I forgive you. It's I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to forgive you. You owed me something, and you don't owe me anything anymore. I have lifted the debt that you owed, and I have lifted my judgment. In the unknowns of motivation, I have chosen not to to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner, but I have chosen to forgive. I went to a Brewers game with uh, Jamie Herbst, and he's a super fan, and he does this weird thing where he sits all the way through. He's not in here tonight. He never shows up when I preach, which is why I get to make fun of him every time. He does this weird thing where he's watching a Brewers game where he will sit in the stands, and he's got his notebook and so he like keeps track of like every single thing that happens all the way through the game. Like every run, every hit, every error. And so he's tracking it like as if it was his job to make sure that the score was accurate. That's fine. Don't do that with people. Don't do that with people. It's just so easy. We walk through life with this like scoreboard. And so it's like, oh, you know, he didn't say hi to me today and check. She was 10 minutes late and check. Check. I didn't like that part in his sermon where he talked about scorekeeping and (laughs) check. Put your scoreboard down and show mercy. Here's what James says about keeping score. James 2 verse 10, for the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. The box that keeps track of your sins and my sins doesn't keep tally marks. There's no place for a number. It's just a yes or no question. Have you sinned? It's not how much or how often. It's not about how society treats your sin or how your church treats your sin. It's a yes or no question. Have you sinned? And if the box is checked, you are in need of mercy and you are in need of as much mercy as anyone else, which is why James says, if you are going to affiliate with Jesus Christ, if you are going to be in the glorious club of people known as Christians, you cannot be a person who walks through life giving out unfair, unequal kindness. You must choose mercy over judgment. James 2 verse 13 says this, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. If that doesn't wake you up from a judgmental spirit, because it wakes me up. I've been staring at this for seven days, and I am awake by James' attention, by the passion in which he's saying this, by the hypocrisy of our faith that I can get pulled into when I begin showing unfair, unequal kindness to the people that are in my life and the people that God has put into my community. I can't miss that. But he finishes the verse and he says this. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. And I'm thrilled about that. I am thrilled about that. If you wanted to write my sins down on a napkin, you would need several napkins. I am so thankful that if I have the ability to choose mercy over judgment, if I'm able to walk through my life being a merciful person, a person who lifts consequences off of people, a person who lifts off judgment and hurt and abuse and says, you are welcome and you are given an open table to my life. I want to be someone who shows you equal kindness to every person, no matter their age, their culture, their skin, their gender. You are welcome into my life that if I can be a merciful person, I have a promise, and he wrote it down in the Bible, I have a promise that God will also show me mercy, and I need that mercy. The NIV translates this little verse in the Bible, and it says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And I just love that. I feel like it should be on your mirror when you're brushing your teeth in the, in the morning, that mercy triumphs over judgment. There's only one judge in this world, and I'm so thankful that it is my loving Heavenly Father who has shown me such great mercy that He has demonstrated compassion to me. And how can I not express my gratitude to him by being a merciful person walking through this world. I've really enjoyed my time kind of working through this sermon, and I got to tell you, there's just like a million different rabbit trails. Like, I could sit here with you and talk about this subject for just days and weeks, but I can't because next week we're moving on to a new subject. One of the things that has really kind of caught my attention going through this is a reminder in every verse that I read, every verse that I've read tonight, of the audience of who James is talking to. And I think it's really important for us to remember who is James talking to in James chapter 2. Christians! When he says there's favoritism in, in, in you, and that favoritism is a hypocrisy of your faith, it's really, really, really important that we don't point our blame outward and go, yeah, our world's pretty rough. Aren't those bad people out there? We should go, we should go get that fixed. It's a natural deflecting mechanism that each one of us has to kind of protect ourselves, but it's a really dangerous habit because James isn't talking to the world, he's talking to the church. I think when we talk about subjects like judgment, we talk about justice, we talk about like going into the world and like enforcing justice, I think it's a dangerous road to walk down for me to go out in the world and say, I am going to force non-Christians to act like Christians. I think it's a bad path. I think Christians should be much more concerned with Christians acting like Christians. Because if Christians act like Christians, more people will want to be Christians. And that attention, it has to turn us inward. It has to make us look at ourselves. It has to go, Father, I pray that you would see any wicked way in me and that you would reprove my heart of favoritism. I want to be a person who shows equal kindness in any room that I walk to with any person that I have an opportunity to speak to that you would allow me to be that because when Christians act like Christians, the gospel looks really, really great. And the truth of the gospel isn't, it isn't covered up. It's not shaded in. It's clear. It's glowing. And when people see a true gospel, when they see a pure gospel, People come to Christ, and that's how our world gets transformed. There's a prayer that is on my heart tonight, and I just want to share this prayer with you. Father, let your Holy Spirit reveal acts of favoritism in my life, and then teach me how to choose mercy over judgment. Father, let your Holy Spirit reveal acts of favoritism in my life, and then teach me how to choose mercy over judgment judgment. Let's pray together tonight. Father, we come before you. We thank you that we aren't alone in this. We thank you that we are not a problem that we have to solve ourselves, but that you have allowed us to be led by your word and by your spirit. I pray, God, that as this conversation we've had tonight continues to kind of spin in our heads, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be at work. I pray that a, that a, an anti-spirit of defensiveness or or judgment would not overtake our thoughts, but I pray that your Holy Spirit would be in our thoughts, guiding us to light up areas of favoritism that you would like to see removed from our life. If we are guilty of showing unfair, unequal kindness, bring that to our attention, that we might be more like your son, and that we would remove that judgmental heart out of us. I pray, God, that you would give us the bravery and the how-to to show mercy over judgment. That when we are in those difficult moments, when it hurts to show mercy, I pray that you would remind each one of us, like like our favorite movie we used to watch or our favorite book we used to read, remind us of your mercy. Remind us of how good you have been to us. Remind us of every sin that you have washed clean from us. Remind us of every impurity that you have made pure. And from your mercy, let us be a beacon of mercy to our family to our loved ones, to our workplaces, and to our church. We give you praise, God. We give you all of the honor. We pray, God, that you would be blessed as we transform to be like your son. In the name of
0: Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we get to see you in person. You are invited to join us on Wednesday evenings here at Oak Creek Assembly of God. We are a church that exists to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. Find us online at oakcreekag.org.